This episode of Armchair Explorer is brought to you by the 2024 Nissan Pathfinder. With seven drive modes, the Pathfinder's available intelligent 4x4 is built for even the most epic journeys. And epic journeys is what we're all about. Learn more at NissanUSA.com. Hey guys, welcome to the Armchair Explorer, where the world's greatest adventurers tell their best story from the road. My name's Aaron Miller. I'm a travel writer. And this week, we are taking on the Kwanzaa River, the longest river in Angola, and it's never been paddled in its entirety before. Well, that is until now, because that's exactly what we're about to do. And let's just say there are hippos, angry hippos, a lot of them. Are you ready? Let's go. Taking us on this adventure is travel author Oscar Scafidi, whose book of this expedition is Kayak the Kwanzaa, Source to Sea Along Angola's Longest River. I'll link to it on the episode page of the website or just search it up on Amazon. It's a good one and I think you'll like it. Traveling with him on this trip is Oscar's friend Alfie Weston, who's actually the guy responsible for coming up with this crazy idea. So we're going to hear a lot about him on this journey too. And that's part of what's cool about this story, I think, too. These are no professional adventurers or explorers. They're no hardened survivalists or African bush experts or anything like that. These are just two young guys who fancied an adventure and ended up doing something incredible, which is kind of amazing for all of us to think about and get inspired by too. And the reason why it's incredible is because they ended up being officially recognized as a world first by Guinness World Records, which is an extraordinary achievement. Quick shout out to them, by the way, too, as they do some really great work helping to gain exposure for adventurers like Oscar and Alfie, who are doing incredible things and helping to share those stories, their stories with us, which I know we all love. So thank you to them for connecting me with Oscar and thank you for all the work they do. The Instagram and Facebook is at Guinness World Records. It's an amazing page. Go and check it out. And the Twitter is at GWR. So Oscar knows Angola really well. He lived there for five years and actually wrote the guidebook for the country too. His Instagram is at Oscar Scafidi. That's S-C-A-F-I-D-I. He's an awesome travel writer specializing in these kind of misunderstood and difficult destinations. He's been to Afghanistan, Sudan, where he actually lived for a number of years. So a really interesting guy to follow. He also has a great YouTube, Scafidi Travels, and his Twitter is that too, at Scafidi Travels. So check that out. Finally, just a quick request to say, if you are enjoying the show, please help by spreading the word. Leave that glowing review. Tell a friend, a fellow explorer, or just someone who needs an escape. Please also remember to follow and subscribe to the show. It really does make a big difference when you do that. So thank you for whatever you can do. The social media is at Armchair Explorer Podcast across Instagram and Facebook. The website is armchair-explorer.com where you can find out background information on each episode, book trips inspired by the show, and sign up for the newsletter. But don't worry about that now, because we are just about to set off on a crazy adventure. It will take us more than 800 miles from the source of the Kwanzaa in the dead center of the country, all the way to the Atlantic Ocean on the western coast. It's one of the craziest kayak expeditions ever conceived and one of the wildest paddles you'll ever have. Get ready to kayak the Kwanzaa. But first, let's hear a little bit more about how this whole thing came about. 
I moved to Angola in the summer of 2009, and I originally moved there to teach at an international school in Luanda, the capital city. So I am a history teacher by training, and in particular, I'm very interested in African history. I met Alfie a few years later. I think he didn't come out to Angola till about 2012, 2013. So I think we originally met playing touch rugby, sort of became fast friends, and it was completely Alfie's idea doing this trip. So I can take absolutely no responsibility for this man-cap scheme. Alfie knew that he was going to be leaving Angola in 2016, and he wanted to do one last big trip to sort of say goodbye to the country and also have an adventure. So he already had a Klepper kayak, which is the collapsible kayak we use for the trip. He'd already used it for a number of different short trips. Two of his brothers came out in 2015, and they did the sort of lower section of the Kwanzaa River, so about a 200k stretch of water. And then they did an 80k stretch up through the Atlantic to the capital city. So they'd already tested out the equipment. And he sort of got thinking, well, could we stretch that out over a longer period and actually do the entire river from source to sea? So he started thinking about this. He started driving down to various points of the river, doing some research, looking at satellite photography. And then once he had a clear idea as to it actually being feasible, he started thinking about who would be stupid enough to say yes to actually doing it. And I think I was top of his list. And I'm glad that I was because I immediately said yes. It sounded like an incredible adventure. And then we set to work planning. The Kwanzaa is not the longest river in Africa, not even close, actually. It's dwarfed by the Nile and the Congo, of course. But it is perhaps the least well-known and the least explored. It had never been paddled in its entirety before. That was an amazing opportunity. But it was also a problem. They prepared hard for nine months, scouting whatever maps they could find, speaking to experts, getting permissions, and dealing with the Angolan bureaucracy, which wasn't easy. No matter how hard they prepared, there were more questions than answers. They were heading into the unknown. And not just that, Oscar hadn't even done any real kayaking before. He was back in London for a few months before the expedition, and he actually trained by kayaking on the Thames, which is about as far removed from the Kwanzaa as you can possibly get. No hippos for a start. So it was a huge risk. In the remotest sections, should something happen, they were pretty much on their own. Help was days away. So they were putting themselves, their lives, on the line. But it was also worth it. Because they weren't just doing this for themselves. They were doing it to help the people of Angola. During their journey, they would be raising money for the Halo Trust, a nonprofit specializing in the removal of landmines. And Angola is one of the worst affected countries. So if you do enjoy Oscar and Alfie's story, consider heading over to halotrust.org. That's H-A-L-O, trust, to find out more about what they do. Because Angola is a beautiful country, but it's also a country reeling from the effects of a brutal civil war. So Angola is a former Portuguese colony. It got its independence from Portugal in 1975 after a lengthy war against the colonial powers. And then rather unfortunately, the Portuguese pulled out very, very quickly. And this resulted in a collapse into civil war. And so Angola had one of Africa's longest running civil wars that went from 1975 all the way through to 2002. As you can imagine, Lots of destruction, lots of displaced people, both internally and also moving across the borders into neighboring Namibia, Zambia, Congo. So yeah, right up until 2002 and after that, the only time people have heard of Angola was as a terrible war zone. And over the course of this war, obviously, Angola was completely destroyed. Even after the war finished, I think when I moved to Angola in 2009, 
the infant mortality rate there was the highest in the world. So, you know, extreme poverty. And although the capital city, Luanda, is a glitzy and glamorous place thanks to the oil wealth, as soon as you drive out of the capital, you see a lot of the remnants of war. So you can see destroyed tanks and helicopters and that sort of thing, blown up bridges. They still have a very serious problem with anti-personnel landmines. So a lot of people killed by landmines every year. So yeah, the, the war had a really, really serious impact on the country. But that's by no means the entire story of the place. I mean, it's an incredible country. Uh, I lived there for five years. It's one of the biggest countries in Africa. And given its location, that means it has one of the widest varieties of landscapes in the entire continent. So you can go all the way from the Namib Desert in the south up to the Congo Basin in the north. So you've got tropical rainforest. I'm very into surfing. And Angola has some of the best surf, I would say, in the world. It's got a very, very long coastline, almost a thousand kilometers, I think. And it's just got empty, empty beaches all the way down. If you're into camping and hiking and mountain biking, anything to do with the water, Angola is a fantastic playground, one of the best in that part of Africa. The civil war devastated the country. More than half a million people lost their lives. A third of the population were displaced. 450,000 people fled and became refugees. And when we think of Angola, if we think of it at all, we think of that legacy, that tragedy. But that's only half the story. It's the other half, the surfing, the hiking, the rural communities and wildlife that Oscar was trying to highlight too. He hoped to encourage adventurers like us, people that want to see places maybe most people never do, to explore the Angola away from the tragedy. He wanted to show us the real Angola, the Angola he loved. And that's exactly what he did. But it wasn't easy. The river is just under a thousand kilometers long in terms of the actual flow. But our trip was going to be longer than that because we were actually going to have to hike certain sections to miss out waterfalls and dams. So we knew that our trip was going to come in at probably 12 or 1300 kilometers. And it divided up quite nicely into three sections. So we'd have to get ourselves right down to the source of the Kwanzaa down in the southeast. This is high up on the BA plateau. And from there, we'd probably have to hike a few days before the river actually got big enough to kayak in. And then we were going to get in. And the aim was to get to a location that we dubbed Quito Bridge. We knew that that was going to be the most remote section of the trip. We had the least information about it. So we contacted a lot of conservationists, people in the military, tour guides, anyone who might have any experience. But we really couldn't get much information. We were going into the unknown there. We didn't know how navigable a lot of it was going to be. We didn't know how many hippos and crocodiles there were going to be. So we kind of planned on that being the most difficult section. So the second section, which was going to be from Quito Bridge all the way through to a dam called Capanda Dam, fair amount of rapids uh, and waterfalls there. So it's going to be a mixed section of hiking and also kayaking. But it's a little bit more known. And also it's a little bit less remote. So there were various large settlements such as Dando and Melange along the way, which were useful if we needed any sort of medical evacuation or resupplies or that kind of thing. And then the very last section was all the way from the dam, Capanda, to the Atlantic. They flew from Luanda to the city of Huambo, 400 miles south, where some of the fiercest fighting had occurred. And so because of that, one of the places where Halo are also working the hardest. The Halo team picked them up there and drove them deep into the Angolan highlands, the landscape getting more remote and wilder the further they went. Down dirt roads and mud tracks, crossing small streams until finally they reached the official source of the Kwanzaa. More of a boggy swamp here than the fast-flowing river it would become, but the beginning of the adventure all the same. Halo dropped them off, drove away into the distance, 
And then suddenly, Oscar and Alfie were alone. The first night that we were there, I think we were still a little bit naive, to be honest. It was just excitement. There were no negative emotions. We had no idea what was in store for us. So as far as we were concerned, everything was going on track. We were where we needed to be. We had all the equipment. We knew where we were going. That kind of gave way to concern rather quickly when we actually started hiking and realized that this was going to be a lot more difficult than we planned. We weren't sure exactly how far we'd need to hike before the river got big enough to get into. But unfortunately, it was a lot further than we'd planned. So I think we had to do a good 50 kilometers. The actual hiking was extremely hard. It was along sand tracks. We'd fashioned a buggy, which had two inflatable tires, in order to drag all our gear, because I think we had over 110 kilos of gear between us. And we were kind of pulling it like pack horses with a bar in front of us and just walking forwards. It wasn't very comfortable at all. Very, very hot. Actually quite hilly, so lots of up and down, obviously pushing through sand. Very, very slow. And yeah, once we actually got in, it was very exciting to build the kayak for the first time, get in. But then we immediately got lost because it was just reeds everywhere and very wide. And because it was quite slow flowing, it wasn't immediately obvious where we needed to go. So we spent the first afternoon where we're actually kayaking very, very worried. Firstly, that we were getting lost. But secondly, that we might just, you know, turn a corner and just there'd be a pot of hippos. This episode of Armchair Explorer is presented by the 2024 Nissan Pathfinder. From muddy jungle paths and snowy trails to rolling sand dunes, the 2024 Nissan Pathfinder has the capability to take you to some of the most epic destinations on Earth. And Pathfinder, that's a pretty cool name, isn't it? Because that's also what this show is all about. Exploring, getting off trail, having adventures, finding your own path and living life to the fullest. Sound like you? Yep, sounds like me too. Which is why I'm so excited to partner with Nissan. The 2024 Nissan Pathfinder has seven drive modes, available intelligent 4x4. It's got the best towing capacity in its class, up to 6,000 pounds. So go ahead and bring all that gear with you and lots more. The 2024 Nissan Pathfinder, a vehicle built for adventures everywhere. So thanks again to Nissan for sponsoring this episode and for the reminder to chase bigger, better, more exciting adventures and enjoy the ride along the way. Learn more at NissanUSA.com. Ah yes, the hippos. Before they left, Oscar and Alfie reached out to some local experts to try and get a gauge of how many hippos there would be. They were told that numbers would be low as so many were poached during the Civil War. But guess what? The experts were very, very wrong. The hippos were everywhere. And that was a huge problem because believe it or not, hippos are the world's most dangerous large land mammal. It's thought that they kill more people than lions, elephants, buffaloes, and rhinos combined. They have huge jaws. They can weigh up to 6,000 pounds. They swim faster than you can paddle. They run faster than you can sprint. And they are aggressive. Come into their turf and there is a very good chance that they are coming for you. And despite being considered a land mammal, they spend about 16 hours a day submerged up to their eyes in water. So as Oscar was just about to find out, they're almost impossible to see until it's too late. We were floating down the river. We weren't paddling. We are actually having our lunch. So we were just floating silently along the river, eating our biltong and whatever else we were having, peanuts. And then we actually floated past a fisherman who was stood on the bank and we asked him, 
are there any hippos around? And he said, yeah, actually there are. I, you know, I saw a pod a bit further up, so be careful. We said, okay, thank you very much. Then we put our food away, got our paddles out and started paddling. And the minute our paddles hit the water, we realized there was a hippo directly underneath us. And the hippo obviously hadn't realized we were there until we'd broken the surface of the water like that. And it immediately surfaced. Alfie's at the back of the kayak, I'm at the front, and it surfaced directly behind Alfie. I never turned around to look, but based on the noise, it sounded like it was extremely close. And what it sounds like is kind of getting a rapid puncture or an air compressor going off. So the first thing they do when they come up is they exhale very, very strong, push all the air out so they can get another breath because they can stay underwater for minutes. So we just heard the, the kind of splash of something coming out the water and then this strong kind of sound of air. And we knew that that was a hippo and we just had to start paddling as fast as possible and hope that it decided to go in a different direction because actually they can swim slash run a lot quicker than we could kayak. So there wasn't much hope of getting away from it if it decided that it wanted to get the boat. But luckily, it was just as scared as we were and I think it went under and then there, it felt like an eternity before it resurfaced, but it actually resurfaced quite a long way away from us. But we learned a valuable lesson on that first encounter and that was, you know, never surprise them. We actually spoke to a National Geographic team who'd done some similar trips, not on the Kwanzaa, but on other rivers down in the southeast of Angola. And they gave us some really hair-raising stories about their experiences. So they actually said that one of their first experiences with hippopods, one of the males charged directly at the lead boat and stuck his tusk through the front of it and launched all of the people in the boat into the water. And then they had to swim to the bank, essentially hoping the whole time that they weren't then going to get chomped by one of the hippos. So we, we, we were always thinking of that as we were going. They were lucky. Not only did that hippo, although startled, not attack them, as they paddled like mad to escape the hippo floating underneath them, they cut a corner skirting next to a thick set of reeds by the river's bank. And then suddenly a huge splash shot up in front of them as another 6,000-pound beast came crashing through the reeds into the river, narrowly missing them and their boat by just a few feet. The hippos weren't just hiding in the water. They were hiding on the bank too, where they had to camp. Just a few days in, and already, this was not the expedition they had planned for or anticipated. The first section of the trip was the most isolated. So I think we went quite a few days without seeing another human being, which both of us found surprising. We knew that we were going to be in a remote area, but our assumption was also that there tend to be rural communities, and we assumed that they would live by the river, which was an incorrect assumption. We went for days on end and didn't see anyone, which is a little bit concerning in the event of an emergency. But yeah, we would get up before sunrise, light the fire to keep the mosquitoes away, try and cook up some food, get some coffee, pack up as quickly as possible, scrape the ice off our tents and off the kayak, and then get in the river as soon as the sun rose. Now, this was another mistake that we made. We couldn't get accurate weather data for the BA Plateau where we were starting, but we assumed that the coldest temperatures would be about six or seven degrees centigrade. But actually, for the first week, I think, the temperature was below zero every single night. And we really didn't have the equipment to deal with that. So our tents weren't warm enough, our sleeping bags weren't warm enough, and we didn't have enough warm weather clothing for uh, the evenings when we got to camp. So yeah, it's a bit of a depressing experience. Getting up in the morning super early, you're exhausted, you haven't had enough food. You try and make yourself some breakfast, and get you're still hungry when you've finished eating it, and then you have to get in this freezing cold, foggy river, trying not to get wet, because it's very, very cold water, and all the while worrying that you're going to go around a corner and find a hippo. So it took a lot of motivation to get ourselves out of bed in the morning and get everything packed up and get in the water. 
once it got warm enough, it was quite pleasant. The landscapes were beautiful. Occasionally, we would go past fishermen, and they'd be very interested to talk to us and find out what it was we were doing. We saw some beautiful wildlife in terms of birds on the river, fishing eagles, all sorts of things like that. I think Angola has one of the largest selections of bird life on the continent simply because of the variety of landscapes. And we were actually keeping track, not just of the bird life, but of the wildlife generally for a conservation organization because they thought this was a fantastic opportunity to get like a transect of the river that no one had done before. So we saw a lot of hippos, uh, far more than we wanted to, but we just kept reassuring ourselves that even though we weren't happy to see them, we were sure that the conservation organization would be because everyone's assumptions were that they were borderline extinct on this part of the river. So we went through a lot of large pods of hippos at the beginning of the trip, which was a little bit hair-raising given our initial encounter. But we kind of stuck to the plan. We would stop, slap the water, shout to them. We'd always shout, hello, hippos. I don't know whether they spoke English or not, but they'd look at us. And once we had all their attention, we'd then quite obviously try and go either to the right or left of them, depending on what they were doing. But that was a stressful experience every single time because we had no idea how they would react And the hippos weren't the only danger. The Kwanzaa is also filled with enormous crocodiles, some more than 15 feet long. And they are man-eaters, having morbidly got a taste for human flesh feeding on corpses dumped into the river during the Civil War. Yeah, man-eating crocodiles. If they stayed in the kayak, they would be fine. Crocodiles rarely attack boats. But they sometimes do, as the well-known South African kayaker Hendrik Kotsi tragically found out on the Congo a few years previously. So it was an incredibly dangerous and stressful start to the trip. They paddled for 10 days, camping in the cold and waking to damp and freezing fog, eyes scanning the water for signs of those underwater beasts. Sometimes they would hear small settlements in the distance, music and drums. Sometimes a fisherman would pass them on the river and sell them a fresh catch to cook over the fire that night. But mostly, they were alone, falling asleep to the sounds of the African bush each night. And then near the end of the first section, when they should have been through the worst of it, disaster struck. We got to a very final obstacle, which was a fishing dam. And the correct option would have been to hike past it. However, that was the slower option. So we went for the riskier option, which was to try and go through the middle of it. So what the fishermen do is they build these wooden structures across the river and they fill them with these nets, like reed nets. And all that happens is in fast-flowing water, the fish go into the net and they can't swim back out. So once or twice a day, you come down, you empty the nets and you've got yourself fish for dinner. They usually leave a gap in the middle simply so that the structures don't fall down if debris comes down or some of that. So we, we thought we were kind of going to skillfully navigate through this two-meter gap in between the dam, which it was in white water, but it wasn't, it wasn't very serious white water. And on reflection, that was a terrible idea. It was an unnecessary risk. What we could have done is got out, carried the kayak for about 400 meters, put it back in and gone about our business. But showing how confident we were, I actually mounted the GoPro on the kayak to film. So I thought, you know, well, this will be good for the documentary, filming us skillfully zigzagging in between this obstacle in whitewater. What I ended up doing was filming us crashing and sinking the kayak, which was also good for the documentary, but not particularly good for morale on week one of the trip. It all went wrong rather quickly. I mean, we ended up hitting the dam side on 
So we were parallel to the structure. And then obviously the water was pushing us up against it. And then the minute we tried to get out and climb onto the dam, obviously the weight distribution changed and the kayak tipped and it started taking water in the top. And, and then it was just instant. The minute that started, it suddenly filled up with water and it just sank. The entire kayak sank with all of our gear and any gear that wasn't attached to the kayak just floated away. And yeah, getting the kayak refloated and then back to the side was a good 30 to 40 minute process. And by that stage, it was very, very badly damaged just because the force had been pushed against the dam. So I think we'd snapped about a third of the wooden structures in the total skeleton. So yeah, we found ourselves stranded by the side of the river, most of our gear floating away down the river and <laughs> feeling a bit silly that we'd managed to do this on what should have been quite an easy section. It could have been a lot worse. Crocodiles don't tend to like rapids, so that was one thing, neither do hippos. And luckily, at that point of the fishing dam, the water was only chest deep. If it had been deeper, the kayak would have surely been swept away along with all their gear, and the expedition would have been over. They also got help, because they were now at the start of that second section of the trip. It was a part of the Kwanzaa that was becoming more populated, and right next to where they sunk was a diamond mine. Now, these are controversial. They cause a huge amount of environmental damage and a lot of organizations are fighting to get them stopped or regulated, which is a good thing. But in this instance, it was incredibly lucky to sink next to one. One of the guys jumped in the water and helped them keep the kayak from sinking. A group of young boys ferried their equipment to the side of the bank. And then when they finally did get out, they were taken to the local mine camp and driven to a nearby town where miraculously they managed to get their 40-year-old rickety wooden frame collapsible kayak fixed. They lost a lot of gear, and even worse, Oscar lost his shoes and ended up spending the rest of the trip hiking hundreds of miles in shoes two sizes too small that basically crippled him and made it agony. But they persevered through a mixture of paddling and portaging. The hiking was a nightmare for Oscar, the paddling fraught with danger. They slept in local villages, in miners' camps, and by the river's bank. They fought mosquitoes at dusk and woke to spectacular morning mist drifting along with the flow of the river. And then their luck with the hippos ran out. As soon as the sun started going down, we knew that we'd have to camp quite quickly because it's very dangerous to keep paddling when it's dark because you can't see obstacles and you can't see hippos. So you're looking for a spot where you have easy access from the river, so... You can drag yourself up quite easily, but not so easy that crocodiles can come up to where you're camping or hippos. You want somewhere nice and flat that's not waterlogged. You want somewhere that provides wood for the fire, preferably some shade, that sort of thing. So we'd always go, well, what about this place? No, no, let's keep going. We can do better than that. Then it'd be kind of stick or twist as you went. And we got to the end of one day and we could see directly ahead of us that there were a couple of options up ahead, but we could also see two rocks in the water up ahead on either side, which tended to be an indication that the water's quite shallow and it also tended to be an indication that further up you're going to find rapids so we were kind of discussing well which side of the rock should we go and we need to camp quite soon and so we stopped the kayak to have this discussion and then just out of nowhere some guy we thought we were completely alone some guy who was up in a tree on the riverbanks just kind of shouted at us and he asked us if we had a rifle which we thought was a bit of an unusual question <laughs> obviously we answered no it would have been impossible for us to get hold of a rifle and also pretty useless and he said, oh, well, then they'll kill you. And he pointed to the rocks. And then when we looked a bit closer, we realized they're not rocks at all. They're hippos just staying perfectly still in the water. But they're very hard to make out because everything's below the water apart from their ears, their eyes and their nostrils. 
So hard to tell the difference between a log or a rock or a hippo unless they're actually moving around or opening their mouths. So we'd almost paddled right in between these two male hippos who had a bit of a bad reputation in the village for terrorizing the local fishermen. And the guy just told us that every evening they just park up there and prevent any access to further down the river. If anyone tries to go past, they get knocked out of their kayak, essentially. So yeah, we had to stop. We tried to go past them, but they weren't having any of it. And they would deliberately move to obstruct our passage, which was aggressive behavior. So eventually we gave up, went to the village and just asked the advice of the local village chief. And he said that we should probably camp for the night. And then in the morning, he'd get us a kind of escort and they would show us the safest route past the hippos because they knew that the hippos moved at different times in the morning. So we'd try and kind of sneak past. So we got to spend the evening in a village with these guys, ate some food, went to bed then in the morning two rather unfortunate fishermen got selected as our escorts and it was their job to go in front of us and show us which way to go with the hippos so we set out very very early we didn't see the hippos at first so we thought it's actually going to be quite a simple process they're going to lead us a few kilometers down the river and then they'll turn around go back to where they came from and we'll keep going but that's not the way it went eventually the hippos appeared on the other side of the river and as soon as they saw us they just started swimming towards us as quickly as they could which is again very concerning very aggressive behavior and not what we'd seen prior to this stage the guys just screamed at us that we needed to get to the other bank and get up into a tree as quickly as possible which we didn't ask questions we just followed them and did what they did but we ended up up a tree but our kayak was still in the water at the base of the tree and the hippos came right up and were kind of sniffing around the kayaks and trying to work out where we'd gone so we were just watching worried that they were just going to take a bite out of a kayak if they'd sunk the kayak we would have been really stuck they stuck around for a while. I think they could see us in the tree and they were a bit annoyed that we had got up in the tree, but eventually they lost interest and we got back down and we just had to go as quickly as possible and hope that we didn't bump into them again. Yeah, they had to climb a tree to escape attacking hippos. Not the expedition they had planned for or anticipated. They were incredibly lucky. These hippos had killed before. They were told that at the village. Can you imagine? getting back in the water after that. But they had no choice. They had to run the gauntlet for more than 100 miles before they would reach the safety of the third and final section. More diamond mines, more obstacles, more rapids, more chances of sinking. But it was none of those things in the end, not even being attacked by hippos or gobbled up by man-eating crocodiles that caused them the biggest problem. It was the police. The plan was we were going to hit this bridge near Melange, which is one of the regional capitals. We had arranged to meet Halo Trust 4x4 for a resupply at that bridge. And then from that point onwards, we knew the river very, very well because Alfie and his brothers had been on that section. So we knew that there were no more hippos. We knew that there were no more rapids, no more waterfalls. We also knew that the rest of the river was very accessible from Luanda, the capital. So were there to be a medical emergency or anything like that, we were probably going to be okay. So we paddled ourselves over to the bridge near Melange, and then we set out to go up to Kapanda Dam, which is a very large hydroelectric installation. It provides a lot of the electricity for the capital city, Luanda. And the plan was paddle up to the dam, camp, and then we'd have to do a section of hiking, because obviously you can't kayak through the dam. And then it was plain sailing all the way to Luanda. By this stage, we were very, very excited. The finish line was looking closer and closer, and it was looking more and more as though we'd actually done it, and not just done it, but done it ahead of schedule. We'd set ourselves a one-month target to get this done. It was very important we met that target because Alfie actually had to go back to work after this. He was actually going to have to finish. Otherwise, he was actually going to have to abandon the mission and head back early. But then we went to the dam. We camped at a village 
uh, kind of about four kilometers from the dam, but the nearest settlement to the dam. And the villagers actually kind of asked us what we were doing, and we, we told them, and they said, okay, you should probably register with the police. But there was no phone signal, so we weren't able to tell the police that we were there. But the village chief was like, don't worry, I'll send someone to go and tell them, and then in the morning you can go down and register, it's all fine. And we had a lot of documentation to prove that what we were doing was allowed. Because Angola is very bureaucratic. You need a lot of permits to do anything. We went to camp, we ate some fish, and what we assumed was in the morning we'll get up, we'll go speak to the police, we'll be on our way. But what actually happened is we went to sleep, and then the next thing you know, we are woken up by the sound of bootsteps and people asking in Portuguese, where are they? And then as soon as I heard that, I knew what had happened. I mean, I was only half awake, but I knew this is the security forces, and they are obviously upset that we didn't register. They unzipped our tents. The first thing to come into the tents were the barrels of their rifles, and then, you know, people with handcuffs reaching in, trying to handcuff us. So my first reaction was to just kind of explain to them that I wasn't going anywhere and that they could chill out. I wasn't going to run. I just kind of quickly put on a shirt, put on some shoes, I stepped out, and then they handcuffed me, which seemed unnecessary, but there wasn't any kind of violence involved. Whereas I think Alfie grabbed the rifle barrel and tried to kind of resist. They grabbed him and someone put their knee on the back of his neck. But yeah, eventually they stood us both up and explained what was going on. And we tried to explain to them, if only they would look at our documentation, they would realize they'd made a mistake and that we were allowed to be there. But they weren't really interested in seeing our documentation. They were just interested in driving us back to the police station and putting us in jail for the night. Which they did. But as it turned out, there weren't any cells left in the local police station. So they ended up putting them into a store cupboard with a watch of guards outside the door so they didn't escape. But that was actually really lucky because A, it was a lot more comfortable than their tents, so they were quite pleased. And B, they forgot to search them. Oscar had his GoPro on him and actually filmed the entire thing. I'll link to the full documentary on the website, by the way, so you can check that out. And crucially, Alfie had his phone. So he was able to send messages to people in Luanda and let them know what happened. They weren't too concerned at this stage. They had all the correct documentation, but the police weren't having any of it. They confiscated all their gear, marched them into a car and drove them hundreds of miles in the wrong direction to speak to their boss. The problem was the dam they camped near that night, the Kapanda Dam, which marked the end of the second section, was considered a strategic site. So random foreigners sneaking around at night with photography equipment was kind of a bad look. So we met the boss. He's the chief of police for the entire province. And his opening lines to us the first time he met us was, let me just tell you right now that your expedition is over. And then we had to spend the next two to three days getting shuttled between police stations and immigrant detention centers, talking to various officials, being coerced into signing these Portuguese language confessions as to what we had or hadn't done. We had all of our gear confiscated, so, you know, had no access to our anti-malarial medication, no access to clean clothes. And eventually things got to the point where they actually drove us all the way back to the capital city, Luanda, which was hundreds of kilometers in the wrong direction. They'd taken our passports. And at this stage, this is where we had to get the British and Italian embassies involved because we were told when we went back to Luanda that all we needed to do was sign a document to kind of confirm that this had all been a misunderstanding and then they'd release our documents to us and we could go back and keep going. But in reality, the reason they would take us back to Luanda was to deport us. And we ended up being taken at gunpoint to this immigrant detention center, which is where they take all the deportees. And to this day, we still don't know what happened. But we just know that the guy who was in charge of the detention center, he basically told us, I think this was a Friday afternoon, he told us, you're staying for the weekend in the cells, and then on Monday we're deporting you. So this is a real serious problem at this stage. 
the guy in charge of the detention center was very, very dismissive, very rude, you know, very unwilling to listen to anything we were saying, quite rude to the British consul as well. And then suddenly his phone rang and his entire body language changed. So you could tell that whoever he was speaking to on the end of the phone was extremely important. And you could hear him say, yes, chef, see chef, see chef. He even stood up when he answered the phone. You know, his body stiffened up. You could tell he was getting a talking to. And then the minute he hung up, he just started shouting orders at people. He told them to burn all the documentation they'd had us create, get rid of our fingerprints, give us all our kit back, get them out of here as quick as possible. I want all of their gear given back to them. I want them out of this center ASAP. We got out the center and I just remember the British consul just turning around and saying, guys, I have no idea what happened, but please just promise me you won't go back out on the river. Alfie and I had to kind of sheepishly stare at the floor because our intention was to go straight back out on the river and get the trip finished. That takes some guts. When the British consul is begging you not to go back and you've been strictly forbidden by the Angolan government and narrowly escaped being deported, which meant losing your job, your home and everything else, it would have been pretty easy to quit. Especially as, if they were going to get the world record, they had to go back to the exact place where they were arrested and continue from there in order to have kayaked the entire length of the river. But that's exactly what they did next. The rest of the trip became kind of like a covert operation. They turned off their GPS and emergency radio so no one could track them. But that also meant no one could find them if anything went wrong. If they met people in the river, they pretended to be tourists, fishermen out for a day trip from Luanda. On the penultimate day, just a few dozen miles from the Atlantic Ocean and the finish line, they actually had to sneak past a police checkpoint on the river, hiding in the reeds in the bank at dusk and paddling as silently as they could. But eventually, after a nervy end and 33 days of paddling and portaging that kayak on their back, they reached the end of the river. The finish line, the Kwanzaa River, there's a big bridge that goes over it, which is the main motorway, which we've used quite a lot to go surfing. And then there's a couple of kilometers and it opens out onto this big river mouth. And there's actually quite a popular lodge down there called the Kwanzaa Lodge, where people go fishing, a very popular fishing spot. It's also a very popular spot for crocodiles. And also we started taking on water in the last few kilometers, so I could actually feel it coming in. And I just remember thinking it would be really bad to sink because I've seen the size of some of the crocodiles here. And there's no way we'd be able to swim to the bank before one of them got to us. So the last 2K was just a terrifying paddle as hard as you can and just hope you don't sink. But it was a huge relief to get out into the Atlantic Ocean. We'd finished. We were both safe. We'd done what we said we were going to do. And even better than that, Alfie's father, as a surprise kind of congratulations for finishing present, had paid for us to have an all-you-can-eat buffet waiting for us at the Kwanzaa Lodge. So... We spent the next two or three hours stuffing our faces while catching up with friends. So that was a fantastic feeling. We paddled out to a sand spit, he writes, that stretched out across the river mouth. We carried the kayak the last hundred meters into the Atlantic Ocean and placed it down in the water. The waves were crashing around us as we waded into the ocean, waist deep. We unfolded an Angolan flag and waved it wildly. We had made it. Our Kwanzaa expedition was complete. Two guys with almost no experience decided to take on something quite extraordinary, something that had never been done before. They had succeeded, but that struggle, that stress, that danger, that relentlessness of it all, that taught them something too. I'd say lessons that I learned personally would be, firstly, you can only plan so much. So we spent nine months planning this trip out and we thought we had it all worked out. And we really thought we had mitigated as many of the risks as we could. 
And it's amazing how much still went wrong and how unexpected a lot of it was. So I think for people doing this kind of thing, you have to be quite careful and be realistic with yourself as to what risks can be mitigated and how many unknowns are going to remain. There's only so much planning you can do and, and a certain amount is down to luck. And we were definitely very, very lucky that something worse didn't happen. But I think the main lesson was just about mental resilience versus physical resilience. You can do as much training as you like, but it's really down to the mental side of it. Your body can scream at you to give up, but you can keep going. I was absolutely amazed at what we were able to achieve in terms of the distances we covered, in terms of the sleep deprivation, the weight loss, the calorie deficit, all that kind of stuff. There's no way I would have thought that we could have done that, but we had to. It's good advice. You can only plan so much. At some point, you do have to jump into the unknown. And although that can be risky, and please don't go kayaking with hippos if you value your life, it can also teach you about yourself, show you what you're made of, and perhaps what's really important too. If two ordinary guys with a kayak and a crazy plan can do it, why can't you? And as far as Angola, there are still problems, of course. The country is still recovering from the effects of decades of violence and extreme poverty. But there's also hope, too. There are some absolutely beautiful landscapes there. They really are some of the last unspoiled areas of wilderness in southern Africa. I mean, we trekked through the Luando Reserve, for example, which has lions in it. And it also has the Palanca Negra, which is the giant sable, which is the Angolan national animal and also one of the rarest mammals on the planet. So there's some fantastic landscapes and wildlife to be seen. So I've got a lot of hope for ecotourism in Angola, having completed that trip. I was just blown away by the amount of help and support that we got from the Angolan people. And these are some people living in some really challenging environments in the interior of the country. You know, a lot of people, especially the fishermen that we met, these are subsistence fishermen working in very, very dangerous conditions, getting attacked by hippos, not knowing what they're going to eat the following day. And even then, these guys are going out of their way to help us, to shelter us in their villages, to escort us past hippos, so putting themselves at unnecessary risk on our behalf. There's no way we would have been able to complete this trip safely without their assistance. And that's why I'm so happy that we raised so much money for the Halo Trust. And they actually wrote a whole report, which they published on their website, talking about the hundreds of landmines they managed to remove from the community, the amount of people that benefited either directly or indirectly, and they're one step closer to have a landmine-free world by the year 2025. So I just think the more publicity they can get for that cause, the better, because there's still a lot of work to be done. It's an ambitious target, but they are now one small step closer. And at the end of the day, as individuals, that's all we can do. Take those small steps. Look for those big opportunities. Do something extraordinary, not just for yourself, but for something larger than yourself. That is how we change the world. Just watch out for those hippos while you do. Thank you, Oscar and Alfie. Thank you for taking us on this crazy journey, 800 miles along the entire length of one of Africa's least explored rivers in one of its most misunderstood countries, battled by civil war, but fighting now to get back on its feet. They ended up raising more than $25,000 for the Halo Trust, which funded two teams of mine clearers in the quito Quanavali region of Angola for one whole month. And in that time, they cleared more than 18,000 square meters of land, which was then returned to the local population for agriculture and living. So amazing work, you guys. Find out more and get involved, if you can, at halotrust.org.
The book of the expedition is called Kayak the Kwanzaa, Source to Sea Along Angola's Longest River. Get it on Amazon or the episode page of the website. The Instagram is at Oscar Scafidi. That's S-C-A-F-I-D-I. And the Twitter and YouTube is Scafidi Travels. And Oscar's up to more mad stuff now, too. He just completed another expedition kayaking from Tunis to Tabarka across Tunisia. So a good guy to follow. Lots of cool stuff and adventures up there. Last but not least, thank you to my man Mike Cumber, a.k.a. The Sweet Chat, for his work sound editing this episode. His song Rummage opens every single show. I love his music, and I think you will too. Search him up on SoundCloud, Facebook, Spotify, or wherever you get your tunes. He posts amazing videos of cover songs and his own original material. The Instagram is at the underscore sweet underscore chap, and the Facebook is simply at sweet chap, no the. Also, finally, thank you to you guys. If you enjoyed this episode, please tell a friend, check out a few more, subscribe and follow the show and be a part of this community. If you love the outdoors and adventure and the pure joy of exploring this amazing planet, you're in the right place. Come and hang out. Let's have some fun. And that's important because the more we look for wonder in the world, the more the wonder of the world becomes a part of who we are. Dare to be truly alive.